Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Please do make sure to check out and join the audiobook book club because this month's pick is Defenders of the Faith, which is a book that is normally like $22 but is on sale for only $3.99 right now. Every purchase of it is going to help support the podcast, help support the varying channels that I do, so I appreciate it. We're going to be doing an in-depth look on the Ottoman Empire and the Austrian Empire and their rivalry and fight over the Balkans. And it's going to get pretty intense because, I mean, it, it's the Balkans. Things are kind of on fire. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. I... Honestly, wait, I don't even, wait, what was the last conversation that you and I actually had? I've done two interviews before this. I actually kind of forgot what which one it was. Coffee. We did coffee. That's right. Yes. Okay. Uh, plug. Shameless. Absolute shameless plug time. Uh, if you haven't bought our coffee yet, do so. Tastes like chocolate. It's very good. It's very yummy. Just see the link in the description. <laughs> but today's story, I've actually been very excited about this one. It's one I've wanted to talk for quite a while about because the last, which was the last badass that we did? Was it, it wasn't, we told Pilecki, like I believe it was when we did the Night Witches, right? But those were badasses and it was more of a collective story versus say an individual. We haven't done an individual Saladin. for a bad, right, We Saladin. did Saladin, yeah. I guess that was more of an individual biography versus just say a badass, even though he was an absolute total badass. We need to do more of these. I'd like to do more stories about people and like their accomplishments and life and what they did. But this is one that I've wanted to talk about for a while, and it really is a badass of history, and there are so many of these that we can do. I wanted to talk about today the story of Roy Benavides. Now, for those of you who don't know, if you don't know his story, it's wild. It's a very wild, fun ride. Is there a movie about this? There should be a movie about this. I'm pretty sure there is. There are recreations of it. So there are, um, he's one of the Medal of Honor recipients, and there have been a multitude of things that have been created. Like there's an entire comic book series that is just Medal of Honor recipients and it's detailing their stories in the action sequences as they occurred, like through a comic book. And it plays that almost like they're superheroes, but really the actions in order to get the Medal of Honor. Let me just say this. The majority of people who earned the Medal of Honor did not live to see the Medal of Honor. Wait, why? Because they, what they did to get it usually killed them. That's so sad. Yeah, but that's that's kind of how it goes. You go through some absolute insane trials. You they they dealt with a lot. They dealt with a lot, and that is one of the reasons why it is the highest honor that you can possibly earn. And it's very difficult to get. So today I wanted to tell the story of Roy Benavides and how it is that he not only earned the Medal of Honor, but became the standard. He lived and became the standard by which almost every soldier would hold themselves accountable. Like, okay, nestled inside the soldier's creed, which every member of the modern army learns in basic training, is the idea of the warrior ethos. It's, I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. And if the army 
ever created the personification of the warrior ethos, like if you could sum that up into a person, that would be Roy Benavidez. Born on August 5th, 1935 to poor sharecroppers in Cuero, Texas, Roy Perez Benavidez lost both of his parents by the age of seven and was raised by his aunt and uncle. At the age of 15, he dropped out of school in order to support his family picking sugar beets and cotton, which I think I'll be honest with you guys, that that is not an easy life. For those of you who don't understand what it was that he was doing, he was a sharecropper. And many people, especially in Europe, they may not be as familiar with what a sharecropper is. Essentially, it's almost like the feudal term for what a peasant would be. Like sharecropping is a type of farming in which families would rent out small plots of land from a landowner, and in return for that rental, they would provide a portion of their crop, which would be given to the landowner at the end of every year. And there would all be kinds of different types of sharecropping that would have different kinds of rules, and this was common all over the world for centuries. But in the rural South, it was typically practiced by formerly enslaved people because when, you know, the slaves got freed, it's not like they magically just got new jobs. For many of them, the only thing they had known for their entire life was planting. So many of them went back to the landlords that they had formerly served on their plantations, but this time for, as a thing that was almost like slavery. You just call them landlords. I mean, they were, because they went from, there were plantation owners to the landlord, like it was the owner of the land. It was the lord of the land. So we did this in the U.S., but they also didn't they also do this in Europe a lot? Oh, it was all over the world. Like, again, we're talking about when I can compare it something like the, the closest thing it could be, we're talking almost like a sense of feudalism where you have a landlord, you have a lord, and the peasants work the land and they pay a percentage of their crops to the lord for the land that they serve on as a kind of tax. Interesting. So it, it was essentially feudalism, but in the modern world. Like, that's really what it was. And sharecroppers oftentimes were bound to the land through a kind of debt. Because what you, t- you do is, you, let's say you have a person who agreed to be a sharecropper. They don't have any of the tools. They don't have any of the stuff that is necessary. So they take out a loan from the landlord to get the supplies necessary to pay for the goods, right? But what happens if you have a bad crop or something happens and it wipes it out or literally any number of things happen. Well, you don't make enough money to pay back your landlord. And so you owe more the next year and so on and so forth. And the debt is basically kept there, locking people into a kind of servitude for years or even decades. Entire families could be bound this way. And it was a problem in many places, but particularly in the South post-Civil War, this was a common thing that could happen. It could pretty much reduce someone to a status of almost slavery. And so as a high school dropout with very few prospects, Benavidez joined the Texas National Guard at the age of 17 during the Korean War. Two years later, he joined the active duty infantry and completed rotations in South Korea and Germany before he went on to attend the military police-like training in 1959. And after graduating from the military police course, Benavides was then assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division and deployed to Vietnam as a kind of advisor by 1965. Advisors, in this case, for those who don't understand, could be someone that would have a military role, but in many cases, an advisor would be someone that would be training local forces. There were many advisors that would have been sent over by America back when the Vietnam War was first breaking out. 
And so on patrol with a South Vietnamese army regiment, Benavidez stepped on a landmine and woke up later in the Philippine Islands in Clark Air Force Base. At the time, he was paralyzed from the waist down. When he arrived at Fort Sam Houston in Texas, doctors broke the worst news. The damage to his spine was simply too severe. He learned that he probably was never going to walk again, and he was just going to get discharged from the army. This is how it starts? Yeah, that's literally how it starts. Okay, but how does the rest... No, no, he's he's not rolling around Vietnam in a wheelchair. It's like, I could imagine that. Okay, I I could genuinely see someone who is that hard set in like a desperate defense situation where they have little rocket jets strapped to their wheelchair and they're just doing little like maneuvers through the jungle. No, honestly, that would probably make him even more badass. But what he did was still just as insane as creating a cyber technic wonder. No, Roy Benavidez had other ideas. What he did is he refused to quit and he was determined to return back to his comrades. So what he did is every night he had his own personal training routine that he did in secret by himself, going completely against any medical guidance But the other soldiers that were in the hospital ward, they would encourage him because a lot of these guys where he was, he was paralyzed and they were amputees. Like they were not going to be going back into combat. That was not happening. But they were rooting him on. He would pull himself out of bed over to the wall and he slowly over time began to redevelop his legs in a kind of nightly routine that he would admit later on this left him in tears. I mean, you got to think his legs were shattered by a landmine, completely straight. He should not have ever been able to walk. And so finally, in secret, except for his wardmates, Benavidez progressed from sitting to standing to being able to shuffle along the wall. And when the doctors arrived a couple months later with his final discharge paperwork, Benavidez, instead of waiting in bed, he stood out of bed and walked over to them. And instead of sending him home, The army then fit 18 months of physical therapy into six and sent him back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. The man beat being paralyzed by himself through exercise. Meanwhile, we're out here struggling to exercise and we're not injured. So that's kind of sad, Steve. I mean, I regularly pull muscles because I simply do too much after not working out for long periods of time. Like, I will be the kind of person that I will not go to the gym for a week and then, or not even a week, that's, that's way too short of time. I will not go to the gym for like three weeks, three or four weeks, and then I will go and be like, man, I really need to get back into this. Works for three hours straight, breaks my body, doesn't go back for two more weeks because I'm in so much pain. No, I just like pulled a muscle getting out of bed the other day, so I don't know. Okay, hold on, that's a, that's a completely other kind of extreme that we're talking here. <laughs> Uh, But Roy, so what he did, though, on his return to the 82nd Airborne, he, at this point, could barely walk. He could walk. He could walk, mind you, but he could barely walk. But by the end of the six months, he was able to run 10 miles with a rucksack. And after completing Special Forces selection in 1967 and training as a weapons expert, Benavides then earned an assignment to the 5th Special Forces Group and returned to Vietnam. Once there... Benavides then requested assignment to Detachment B-56 under the control of the Military Assistant Command Vietnam, the Studies and Observation Group, or MACSOG. And in April 1968, Benavides would narrowly escape a patrol with his life thanks to the intervention of Sergeant First Class Leroy Wright, 
Now, Benavidez and Wright had known each other in the 82nd Airborne Division and together had gone through Special Forces selection. There, they found themselves both reunited in Detachment B-56. So his story so far makes him amazing. Like, this is, this is already crazy. He, from a young age, fought hard, went into Korea. Well, I mean, he went to Korea, pretty much deployed there. It's not necessarily that he did as much, but he went into Vietnam, got blown up, and then came back for more, which is something that many Vietnam veterans absolutely would not have done. But what would happen later? That would be truly legendary. And it all started with the desperate situation of some Green Berets. Now, many of you already probably know this, but Gabby, do you know what a Green Beret is in the first place? And no, no, before you answer, don't you dare say a beret that is green. Don't you say a green hat. Okay, then that was that. I, have I no could answer. see the look on your face. I know exactly what you're planning on I doing. I have no answer, but I'm assuming it's an elite unit of some sort. Basically, the U.S. Army Special Forces, popularly known as Green Berets, they became famous for their exploits in Vietnam, but they traced their roots back to World War II's first special service force because pretty much warfare, you had special units, you had special light infantry units, but for many things that you didn't really see immense amount of specialization in forces like that until World War II and post-World War II. That's where you really started to see the development of these special operation forces. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So at the time, they had this arrowhead-shaped patch shoulder that was adopted by the Vietnam generation. And it was the Office of Strategic Services and Alamo Scouts. That was the Green Berets. In June 1952, the 10th Special Forces Group was formed under the command of Colonel Aaron Bank. The unit was reorganized in May 1960 as the 7th Special Forces Group. Now, it was formed too late to play any kind of significant role in the Korean War, but the Special Forces would hone their skills and doctrine in the crucible of Vietnam. They were directly subordinate to the U.S. Special Operations Command, and the Special Operations Forces troops were already ready and were able to operate with other allies as any kind of circumstances demanded. Essentially speaking, their extensive training would enable them to perform any variety of functions that ranged from simply establishing village medical facilities to engaging in covert actions, whether it be assassination or espionage, or I say espionage, it's not exactly espionage, it's more along the lines of reconnaissance. That's the proper term, not espionage, reconnaissance. Because they're going to be going into an area with small numbers and capable of so much more than the average soldier would be. But what makes the special forces special in that sense is, in large measure, it's the, it's the ability to do multiple things. They have a multitude of specialties that they have mastered, which includes a variety of different weaponry, including the enemy's weaponry. 
and airborne operations as well as foreign languages. I mean, can you imagine this, Gabby? Imagine you were a soldier, you were deployed into an area where you're supposed to engage in a covert action and you don't speak the language of anything of where you are. Like you don't understand it. That's going to make your life exceptionally more difficult. Yeah. So imagine deploying soldiers to an area. They speak the language or at least some of them can. But the bigger important thing is that they have full knowledge of the enemy's tech and weaponry and everything. So that in the event that they're deployed behind enemy lines, they know perfectly well how to use the enemy's weapons against them because they are not going to be in an area that they can easily resupply their own force. So that they prioritize teaching them the weapons or teaching them the language? Everything. Cool. But I mean, it really depends. The I think big- it's really important to know the language if you're fighting someone, because what if they're calling out their battle plans and you're just standing in the middle? You are the target of those battle plans. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So special forces units, they have limited but very highly focused capabilities that allow the army to use them as a kind of economy of force tool. The idea of which is you have a small elite force that is able to do a lot of tasks that can be deployed to any number of fronts for a specific task that you need them for versus an entire massive specialized force designed specifically for that. They can do anything. They are prepared to take on a variety of missions wherever they have been sent, starting from Laos in 1959 all the way to Afghanistan in 2021. But this time, this time, these guys were in trouble. And so 33-year-old Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides was off-duty attending church services when all of a sudden the fighting began. Now, he'd spent the last 10 minutes anxiously monitoring the radio chatter from the front. You had this 12-man squad of Green Berets who had stumbled into an intense firefight. And now, these men suddenly found themselves surrounded and pinned down by a full battalion of North Vietnamese infantry. I mean, Gabby, like if we're talking military sizes, do you know how much a battalion is? A hundred men. You know what? That's actually pretty close, but multiply it by several times. It's around 500. 500. Yeah, there you go. Hey. So it, battalion, it can range entirely depending on the military we're talking about. But if you really look at the estimates, then you're looking at in this point anywhere between like 500 and 1,000 or even 1,500 men. Like it, it, battalion sizes can vary immensely depending on the military that you're looking at. But we're still talking about a situation where it doesn't matter if it's 100 or 500. They're going up against 12 dudes. 12. 500 versus 12? Yeah, it's a squad. It's literally a squad that is pinned down. Can you explain military numbers? Like how many men are in each thing? I can probably do a video on that, but this is where it's going to be very difficult to explain because there are differences between varying militaries. And even within the U.S. military, you have different size squads for different things. Like they're, they're... it, there's more like a range. So for a how squad isn't 12 people. Their squad was just 12 people. Their squad was 12 people. Okay. Now, past a certain point, you're not going to call it a squad because it's going to be a multitude of squads and that squad would then be part of a platoon. That platoon would then be part of a company. The company would be part of a battalion. And the battalion is part of the army? <laughs> the entire force? Actually, wait, no. I think I reversed it. I think it was battalion. Then co- I think I just reversed it. Battalion and then battalion part of company. I'm now screwing that up within my own head and it's really messing with me. I'm sorry. This is what I do when I get too involved. It's okay. This is a tangent. Then now off the top of my head, for the, I know I'm going to get a whole bunch of angry reviews now that are going to be going, oh, oh, he talks all this military history and he couldn't remember which was bigger, the company or the battalion. I'm like, I haven't thought about it in so long. It's now messing with me as to whether or not it is. But that's, that's how that works. Are you looking it up right now? We can verify. We can verify. Oh. Uh- 
I typed in company or a bat. I thought it would autocorrect, and I typed in cricket bat. She just typed in cricket bat. <laughs> I'm doing my best, okay? Like, this is, this is your fault for not knowing. So, a battalion in the U.S. Army is normally made up of three companies and 300 to 1,000 soldiers, but can have up to five companies. Okay, so I was right the first time. It is companies, and then from company is battalion. There we go. Okay, I literally was right. I just second-guessed myself. God, I hate it when I do that. <laughs> so, these guys were stuck and were surrounded by anywhere between 500 to 1,500 men. Like, you can see that it just, it ranges depending on how much is in each. Now, obviously, these Vietnamese soldiers were not simply going to be in the mood to just put down the rifles and start, you know, talking to the Americans about why the hell they were there. It's clearly the enemy. They're going to go after them. So these guys were going around deep into Cambodia with their guns, with cameras, walkie-talkies. They were very clearly on a mission. Nearly every man in the American unit had been wounded or killed in the early rounds of the fighting, which is going to happen when it's 12 versus potentially 500 or 1,500 men. And three choppers had been sent in but were driven off by the intense ground fire from heavy machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades. They were just firing RPGs around. But if there's one thing that you should probably know about the U.S. Special Forces, is that the Green Berets do not screw around when it comes to kicking ass. They are, they are absolutely insane, and they will not leave behind a man for anything. So when Roy Benavidez saw what was happening and saw the remains of this crippled evacuation helicopter that was coming back in, screeching to a halt on the base runway, he knew what he had to do. There was no way in hell that he was going to leave his good friends, his brothers, to die out alone there in the middle of the jungle, surrounded by their enemies. So what he did was grab a rifle and as many medical bags as he could carry and jumped onto the deck of the first chopper that was heading back to the front lines. Now, mind you, he was doing this by himself and ordered him, to, like, I believe it, the, the, the quote from it is that he just ordered the pilot to go. Like, we're going now. Now, maybe he wasn't going to hold off the entire enemy force by himself but at the very least he was going to damn well try that was the plan though he was planning on doing that oh and he was going to do so much more but when the helicopters reached the extraction zone benavidez got a good look at the situation on the ground and it gabby that was it was not exactly a bunch of rainbows and unicorns like they were they were um in a little bit of a pickle Every man from the Special Forces squad had been wounded, many beyond the ability to fight, and they were completely surrounded and trapped by entrenched enemy troops who had mortars and heavy machine guns. Not to mention, of course, as discussed earlier, they were vastly, vastly, vastly outnumbered. Now, Benavides knew that these men were not going to be able to get out of the landing zone, or rather to the landing zone, and because of the overabundance of large North Vietnamese firepower and other weapons, this meant that the rescue helicopters were not going to be able to get anywhere near the firefight without just simply exploding. Because the moment that any extraction vessels came in, they were going to disappear very quickly. So Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez did something that most sane people probably never would have considered attempting. He told the pilot to find a nearby clearing and put him on the ground. It was going to be a little bit of a way, like a bit of a ways away, I guess you could say, but he was going to get there. Maybe, maybe he was the only Green Beret that was going to be surrounded by a bunch of enemy soldiers, but that didn't matter. 
So what he did is he jumped down from the chopper onto the grass below with his rifle slung over his shoulder and his arms loaded with as many medical supplies and first aid kits as he could carry. This one-man machine then proceeded to sprint 75 meters under heavy enemy fire, hauling ass through these fields of tracer bullets and stunned North Vietnamese troops that were looking at him like, oh, wait, wait, who the hell is this guy? Wait, what is going on? Because he was just a single guy coming in from a completely random direction that they had no idea what was happening. Okay, for people like me who don't know what a tracer bullet is, what is that? Okay, think of it like this. Um, it, it's most commonly associated with larger vessels like aircraft. Okay, you know how you can't see a bullet when you're firing it? Yeah. Like it's moving way too fast for your eye to actually see and yeah. it's a little dark shape. Okay, okay. So a tracer bullet in aircraft, when they would be firing at other airplanes, they needed to know what direction they were actually going. This okay, also applied to anti-aircraft they, guns. Why were they firing them at him? Is what I'm trying to get at. Well, if you have machine guns, machine guns would be equipped with tracer rounds so you could kind of see what general direction the bullets were going in. Okay, thank you. So they, every, not other round, I think it's like every, what, 10th round? It really depends on the gun that it's equipped with, but every certain number of rounds is a tracer bullet that will be basically like a little light. So you could kind of see the direction of where it is going. That, that That's the gist of it. So when he reached this Green Beret's position, He'd already taken a few bullets and some shrapnel to the face, to the arms, and also to the head. But at least he was still upright and he was ready to bite off the enemy's faces and transform those faces into crap, which honestly, considering how he looked like a bloody mess by the time he got there in the first place, they probably were going to shit themselves uh, the moment that they saw him in the first place. He wasn't exactly pretty and the situation wasn't good. Everyone was badly hurt, including one guy who somehow was still fighting even though one of his eyes had been shot out. And now it was basically down to Sergeant Benavidez to organize this beat-to-hell team and hold off the entire NVA battalion by himself. So immediately, he springs into action. He's surrounded at this point by around a 1,000 or so North Vietnamese troops who are attacking him with all kinds of things. We're talking AK-47s, RPGs, BFGs, mortars, hand grenades, literally anything that goes boom is being thrown at him. That's just how it's going. But Benavidez is going from troop to troop. He is providing morphine and first aid to any wounded that he can find, and he drags the troops and brings them over to a more defensible position. From there, he can direct their fire against enemy weapons teams. And despite intense fire, Benavidez then went guns blazing in with his rifle. When his M16 ran out of bullets, he then picked off AK an AK-47 from a dead North Vietnamese trooper and then continued his one-man war against all of these communist forces, including holding them off and clearing a path for his team to try and be extracted to safety. Once the way out was clear, Benavidez then threw down some smoke canisters, signaling to the rescue helicopters that it, w- it was time to go. Like, literally, it is time to go. We have to get these men out of here. One brave pilot managed to land in order to get the wounded men out of there, and Benavidez personally carried the wounded men to the evac point, making six separate trips in order to try and assist these wounded soldiers and recover classified documents that had accidentally been dropped in the middle of the war zone. Okay, he is literally the person they make video games about. He's the, he, he is Rambo. Like, if you were going to compare a real-life person to the, like, to the movie character of Rambo, it is him. He is the Rambo and Terminator all in one with what he is doing. It was absolutely insane. And while he was providing covering fire for the last of the Green Berets to board the chopper, disaster struck. And North Vietnamese frag grenade landed super close to Benavides. 
blowing up his, this, like he, he blew up next to him and it knocked him off of his feet and he racked his back with shrapnel from it. As he hit the ground, an AK-47 bullet struck him in the abdomen. He lost consciousness, but only briefly. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When he came to a few moments later, he looked up to see a flaming, smoking wreck where the rescue helicopter had once been. The one vessel that had managed to try and get down there to actually help them was gone. Now, mind you, Roy Benavidez was a warrior in all aspects of his life. This guy was one who was never going to give up at all for anything. And this was not going to be any kind of exception. You remember his story from what he did back at the hospital, where, well, he should have been paralyzed. He forced his body back in to stop being paralyzed. Like, really, I have no other word to explain that, except he forced his body to not be paralyzed anymore. (laughs) That is who this guy is. If the North Vietnamese wanted to take them, like him off their backs, they were going to have to do a hell of a lot more than just shooting him like two or three or seven or 12 times. Yeah, he he got shot, hit, blown up, everything. A lot, like a lot over the course of this fight. They were going to have to do a hell of a lot more to stop him. So within seconds of him coming to, Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez was then back on his feet, pulling the survivors out of the flaming wreckage of the helicopter and organizing the stunned soldiers to set up a perimeter around the crash site. After checking on these still-injured guys, he gave ammo to the men that were still capable of holding a rifle and administered morphine and water to those who needed it. Benavides immediately then got back to the Herculean task of holding off a battalion of enemy infantry and heavy weapons, basically by himself. Remember how he said he got shot, like, several times before? Yeah. Yeah, he then took another bullet to the thigh and started bleeding rapidly. Benavidez then got on radio and started calling down tactical airstrikes, attack helicopters, napalm, literally anything that you could think of. He was calling it down on positions that were just a few meters away from him. They were blowing up literally in his face. And so by the time the second set of rescue helicopters arrive, he had been fighting nonstop for almost six hours straight. When the chopper hovered over the landing zone, Benavides once again started pulling men to the helicopter, loading wounded after wounded man up there for extraction. The North Vietnamese, seeing that their enemy was escaping, then decided to mount one final full-on human wave charge to crush the Green Berets once and for all and not let them get out of there. And with a terrifying yell, suddenly all these enemy troops came pouring out of the forest in every single direction with bayonets. So it was just... Everyone versus him. Literally everyone versus him. Like, I want you to imagine that scene from, um, do you ever, what, what was it called? What was it called with Will Smith? And it was, um, 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 with the zombies, the zombie movie that he was in, but it wasn't zombies because they were like vampires. Uh, and he had the dog that. and the dog transform. No clue. Mm, Sorry. There is that scene in the movie. It's going to bother me that I can't remember it, but there's that scene in there where they're all breaking in 
to the door and he's just standing there with a grenade in his hand, just like trying, just waiting for it to come in. Imagine that, except instead of a grenade in his hand, you got a guy who's not crying, perhaps might even be smiling eagerly and is looking forward with maybe a bloody knife and a pistol and is just ready to go. That's, that's what this is going to turn into. Benavidez was waiting for them. He'd been through way too much to start losing guys, and this then led to an intense no-hold-barred hand-to-hand combat. He was bayoneted a couple times, he had his jaw broken by a rifle butt, but somehow, somehow, as man after man after man poured in, he continued to fight off this horde of enemies with just a bayonet and a pistol, while the remainder of all the other soldiers, who were still bleeding out, mind you, managed to get away. In the end, suffering from 37 bayonet, bullet, and shrapnel wounds to all the various parts of his body, Benavides then used the last of his strength to pull himself on board the helicopter, the last man to leave the battlefield. The helicopter was completely riddled with holes, it was covered in blood, and basically had no functioning instruments. They were, they were going in blind, or rather, I guess, out blind. But the pilot somehow managed to take off and got the team out of there. Over the course of the process, Benavides then lost consciousness. L- literally, as soon as he knew they were clear, I'm guessing all that adrenaline just went away, and he was out. Sergeant Roy P. Benavides of the 1st Special Forces was credited with single-handedly saving the lives of eight men during six hours of nonstop battle. When their recovery team went through the site a few days later, they discovered a grand total of 30 empty North Vietnamese foxholes with heavy weapons and they saw the battlefield completely littered with more dead than they actually had time to count. After the rescue helicopter landed at the base, Roy Benavidez's motionless body was carried off. And after a preliminary inspection by the medical personnel on site, he was gently laid down into a gurney and was wheeled to the coroner's office as dead. Just as they were zipping up his body bag, Benavidez then used the last of his energy to spit in the doctor's face. Are you joking? Nope. Is this real? It's real. It's real. The following is part of the story that was recounted by Roy in the 1991, like, speech that he gave. And I'm going to read this verbatim because these were his exact words. So I, I was cleaned up, put on a helicopter alongside my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne. I just said to myself, hold on, buddy. Just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I was, oh God, why did you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying. I was moving so much that the co-pilot, he happened to look back and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, gets his bayonet out, and he was going to do a trach on me. I'm about to kick him out of this helicopter. That's just too much for one day. So I, we, landed at a hospital at, at Long Bin. And it was wheeled into the operating room and I was being lifted into my operating table. And I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying and yelling, asking God, why do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And I turned a little bit to my left. I saw the other operating table that a man had both his legs and both his arms missing. And I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me and we were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. And after a short while, My buddy was transferred from there, and I thought that he died. I was transferred to Japan at Tashikawa, and in that airplane that I was flying in medevac, we lost two men. And I remember the nurse kept yelling at me, 
Benavidez, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. And boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me onto the operating room, they just rolled me again. I remember the doctor. I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me. And I said, that lady kept pinching me. <laughs> Literally, the whole time this is happening, and this is just what he's recounting. So after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston Beach Pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital for almost a year. I continued with my career, and I was awarded a medal. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I could help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope that that is a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero, and I appreciate that title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives and mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in the hospitals, disabled for life, and in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of this country. The students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs, those are the real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans. For those who have fought for it, life has a special flavor the protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace, most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I have been overpaid for the service to my country. There will never be enough paper to print the money, nor enough golden Fort Knox for me to have been kept from what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder, I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America. That was a speech from one of his things. It's honestly really impressive to listen to. After over a year in various hospitals, Roy Benavidez recovered, and he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. Now, at the time, the Army believed that there was no eyewitnesses to the account of what happened, which, in order to earn the Medal of Honor, which everyone was saying, like, no, there's no way in hell this guy didn't get it. He had to have gotten it. You can't earn it unless you have a verifiable eyewitness account of the event. But on February 24th, 1981, after finding a living eyewitness, President Ronald Reagan upgraded his Distinguished Service Cross to the Medal of Honor. After serving at Fort Riley, Kansas, and Fort Sam Houston, and having reached the rank of Master Sergeant, Roy Benavidez retired in 1976. He made encouraging and guiding young Americans his priority through public speaking and mentoring, particularly to push underprivileged children away from gangs and instead into military service to bring a kind of productivity and purpose, which is something to be said, because a lot of people give criticisms for the military for preying on those who are in bad situations. You've heard this many times, right, Gabby? Yeah, but to a certain level, it is true. Like, to a certain level. It is. It is. It absolutely is. There's, there's really nothing in society ever that is completely black or white. And that's something that I try to tell people over and over again as to how situations, like systems, why everything is created and what happens. There's always a cause and effect. And there are things that are done that are positive. There are things that are done that are negative. In the case of Roy, from his life, he pushed people who would otherwise have nothing to do something that would at least give them some kind of purpose, stability, 
education. That's at least what he believed. It may not be right for each person, but that was his personal stance. In 1983, he fought for his Vietnam War comrades one last time, successfully advocating for the continuation of the disability benefits for Vietnam veterans. He then passed away on November 29, 1998, at the age of 63, and was buried at Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. And that is the story of Roy Benavides. Or at least part of it. There's so much more that could be talked about. There's so much more from his life. But this, th- these are the actions that led him to being the celebrated hero, the one that we know the story of, when we really don't know the story of so many people. But before we end things here for today, I wanted to go ahead and share today's listener story, which comes to us from Joshua Hawbaker. He writes, Hello, Stakui. I'm one of your many YouTube subscribers, TikTok followers, and podcast listeners. Oh, man. Hey, Trifecta. You're really into a lot of this. Thank you very much. And I wanted to share a message to share some of my family history stories with you. I have a few interesting things to share, but if you just want to share one at the end of the podcast, that's okay with me. So the first story dates back to the American Revolution, when General George Washington is leading the Continental Army against Great Britain. He orders a fellow by the name of William McElvey, pronounced McAlevey. Oh, McAlevey. Okay, so McAlevey to travel up to Pennsylvania and establish a fort. After the war, a tiny town began to settle around the river that ran near the fort, and this town was known as McAlevey's Fort. After hundreds of years, I was born and raised in this little town. Then a few years later, I learned from my brother doing a fifth grade history project that we actually have direct ties to him on my dad's side of the family. That's actually pretty cool. A lot of people trace their lines back to specific movements or moments, rather, in history. Like, for example, I know that a large portion of my family came over from the Irish potato famine, just as many people probably can trace in their lineage considering the numbers of people who are descendants of these people in America. Gabby, in your case, from your descendants, like, or descendants, ancestors, rather, your grandfather came over after fleeing specifically from India to Trinidad. And the second story that we have here is, well, we got some history from my dad's side, so let's get a story here from my mom's side. Back in World War II, there was a young American soldier who was serving overseas, fighting in Germany, where he meets a young German girl. I'm not exactly sure how they met, but they did, and they began to talk and then fell in love. As the war ended, the young man asked her to come to America with him. And she did, considering that she had wanted to escape from a war-torn country years before the war ended, which honestly was the smart move, especially from what happened later on with Germany towards the end of the war and post-war. And he went home and began to gather the necessary funds to have her come to America. After finally getting what he needed, he sent her the funds and she began traveling to America finally arriving in Ellis Island. Fun fact, she was actually among the last few people to come to America through Ellis Island. And as soon as he received word that she'd arrived, he hopped on his motorcycle and went to get her, to bring her home to Pennsylvania, where they lived a long, happy life together. These are the stories that stuck with me the most, and I wanted to share them with the world. That way, others may hear their tales and their memories may live on. Thank you for your time, and you have a wonderful day. Well, I hope that you too, Joshua. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. And remember to anyone who's listening now, if you yourself have stories that you'd like to share, make sure to go check out the podcast website and submit them using the contacts tab. I appreciate each and every one of you who has listened and to help us get to the point where we are today. Thank you very much. And I do hope you have a good rest of your day. 
Goodbye, guys. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.